Whether you're a new resident to the state or have lived here all your life, the experience of an earthquake can be frightening. When the earth starts moving, you don't know how much damage may occur until the shaking stops. The sense of helplessness is humbling. And for coastal residents, the relief at the end of the earthquake can be quickly replaced by tsunami anxiety. We'll discuss the latest technology and science working to better understand tectonic movement and the tsunamis they can generate today on Talk of Alaska. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by Northern Air Cargo, providing cargo transportation to nine Alaska communities. NAC offers options including cargo charters to get freight where it needs to be. Northern Air Cargo, serving Alaska since 1956. Invasive plants and animals threaten Alaska's waters and can spread to new locations by hitching a ride. Anyone can help stop aquatic hitchhikers by remembering to clean boots, boats, and trailer to remove plants, animals, and mud. Drain bilge, ballast, and buckets before leaving the area, and dry equipment before using it in a new body of water. Learn more at stopaquatichitchhikers.org. This message sponsored by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Even after living here for more than two decades, I'm always anxious when I first feel the earth moving. My anxiety subsides when the quake does and I can focus on assessing damage if there is any, but that's it. I don't live on the coast, so even though I may get an inadvertent tsunami alert, I don't suffer the fear of a possible impending wave of destruction coming from my neighborhood. Why is it so hard to predict when a tsunami wave may form and how large it will be? Why do people who are at no possible risk of tsunami inundation still get tsunami alerts in Alaska communities? And what's the latest information on the ability to detect earthquakes before they happen? We've got some of the top seismic experts in Alaska on hand today to help us understand how we can better plan to keep ourselves safe during those very long seconds when it's shaky, loud, and scary. Dr. James Gridley Jr. is the director of the National Tsunami Warning Center located in Palmer. Dave Snyder is the Tsunami Warning Coordinator for the National Warning Center. And Dr. Dmitry Nikolsky is a research associate professor at the University of Alaska Fairbanks Geophysical Institute. Welcome all of you. I'm so glad you're all in the studio today. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. You can also join us, Alaskans. Are you located in a tsunami hazard area? Are you looking for guidance on what to do when an earthquake starts? And what is the latest information about why some people get tsunami warning alerts when they don't need them? Call us statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. So, uh, Dr. Gridley James, I want to start with you. Start off by describing the work of the National Tsunami Warning Center. How does the U.S. network feed into your facility here? And when an earthquake sensor in California goes off, how and when does that trigger a tsunami watch or warning? Uh, great. So the center in Palmer is uh, responsible for all of the North American coast, uh, watching for tsunami and being able to warn for that. 
So we ingest all sorts of seismic data from throughout the world, something like about a thousand stations at once. In real time, we're constantly analyzing that. That data tells us whether or not we need to look further and consider whether maybe an earthquake has been tsunamigenic, meaning that they may have produced a tsunami or not. And then we act based on that. And our center is sitting there in Palmer. We have a sister center in Hawaii that, uh, that handles other aspects of, of the uh, U.S. mission, say for Puerto Rico, the islands, Hawaii, et cetera. And they have some international agreements. Uh, so when we do see a big event, we, our folks, our duty scientists, will um, analyze it. And then we have sets of procedures to get us started that tell us, based on history and other physics, whether or not we need to move forward and take action, maybe get people moving, uh, or maybe watch further. Simultaneously, we're reading in another about a thousand water stations, sea level stations. That's telling us in different parts of the world the, the level of the of the ocean at the time. And based on that, we uh, we, we can further analyze and p potentially even forecast based on that once we once we have identified an event and identify a tsunami wave. Uh, after that, we we use the Weather Service um, National Weather Service weather uh, uh, system for disseminating warnings whether it's uh, through phone calls, emails, or the official uh, national uh, uh, dissemination paths for getting messages out. And we have Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, and then it's our job to continue that process through an event where we're regularly putting out information and, and giving warnings and updating all the way through cancellation and then some work after that happens. Mm -hmm. You describe your role as sort of incident commander how did you train? What's your background that led you into this work? <laughs> well, there's no degree in tsunami, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, now I have a PhD in geophysics. I started in geology. Um, I actually came through all sorts of other industries and ended up here uh, with NOAA. But uh, as incident commander, um, my job's very interesting, whereas if you were to compare me to the director of the National Hurricane Center, they can see a hurricane developing in the Atlantic Basin and build up their, their whole effort for responding to that. We only have five minutes. And so that makes me constantly on, on watch, mm -hmm. I'm, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm sort of in this mode of living on the edge of my seat, having to potentially go to action uh, it, within just a matter of minutes. So, so there's a big difference there. You could be a reporter, actually, with that <laughs> no, mindset of no. being on call 24-7. Or, or, par or parent. <laughs> yes, absolutely a parent. So uh, you mentioned that the tsunami National Tsunami Warning Center in Palmer uh, includes Canada, the East Coast. There's another facility in Hawaii. Why are the centers in the 49th and 50th state, and why are there only two, none on the East Coast? So I'll start with how we operate. We operate under a law called TWIRA, the Tsunami Weather Education Research Act. And that prescribed that there'll be two centers, one in Hawaii and one in, uh, in Alaska. The Hawaii Center is there following a 46 event that caused a tsunami. Uh, and that was a response to that event. And there was loss of life. The um, National Center in Palmer is in Alaska because of the 64 quake. Right. So following that, they wanted they wanted to have some kind of capability in Alaska as well. And at the time, Palmer represented an area that had a least amount of damage, but was also a communications center. Because, of course, that's the key. You can't just know that something's going to happen. You have to be able to get the message out. 
And so it's. And you got to be in a facility that you can stay in and yeah. don't have to evacuate. Yeah. yeah. And our facility's hardened. We're, we're there, capable of um, withstanding pretty pretty large earthquake in the area and still do our job. And then we have this sort of backup arrangement with, with the facility in Hawaii. And and so our because of these big events in 1946 and 1964, is it assumed that those two states have the kind of the highest level of risk? I don't assume that. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I don't assume that is because Cascadia, which is off the coast of Oregon and Washington, is another subduction zone, is is known as being a very high risk area. Mm. Okay. And then you have to also consider that. It's not just the local earthquake, something local to Alaska or local to the state of Washington. We have big quakes across the Pacific Basin that will travel, a tsunami will travel across the uh, entire ocean and could impact any of the coasts, well, on the West Coast. And, they, and we actually see them occasionally on the East Coast as well. Mm. All right. Well, thank you for getting us started there. Dave, I want to turn to you uh, as the Warning Center coordinator. You work with emergency operations and government responders on both the Pacific and Atlantic coasts. Tell us what you're doing when an earthquake hits off the East Coast. What what steps are triggered? We want to make sure that the local weather forecast offices are receiving our information, right? They're our first line of disseminating that warning level information that can get it out to the NOAA weather radios, to your third party applications, and actually turn on the maps and the colors and all the, the magic things that happen right after we send an alert so people can see that something is going on. So that's our first line, but we want to make sure that the emergency management teams in the states have that information. So just like we would for Alaska, each one of the states up and down the eastern seaboard has an emergency management center, and we'll spin those up and communicate with those on a regular and routine basis and kind of keep that drumbeat of information going. We also want to make sure that the Federal Emergency Management uh, Agency has our information so that they can communicate that out to anybody else that needs to respond, all the way up from the White House down to the local community level. I'm sure you've heard the complaints from Alaskans about getting tsunami alerts when they were not in a warning area or not getting alert when they should. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about the difficulty in targeting these alerts to the audience that most needs them? I, I know that, James, you were talking about uh, using the weather service maps, I believe, and that's maybe where some of the confusion comes in? Sure, sure. So, un unfortunately, the the tsunami part of the alert process is probably a good 20 to 30 years behind where we've figured out weather is today. And one of those ways that we communicate weather emergencies and alerts is through uh, the, the weather service alerting system that works through something called a public weather zone. And if you look at a map on the Weather Service page, weather.gov, right now, if you click on your local area, for example, on Anchorage, or if you're listening from uh, the interior, you'll see a lot of things that look like county lines in any other part of the country. But those lines are weather forecast zones. And so we, uh, we describe the weather situation in your forecast and current situation by those boundaries in our weather systems. And that's great for the weather system, but that's not really good for you all of the time. And it's certainly not good for something that's only a coastal problem. So when we're alerting through those coastal boundaries or those needs, we're using those public weather forecast zones, but that's not a, it's not a good way to describe the problem. And so that's already larger than the coastal alert that we need to touch. 
And then when you layer on other zones, including third-party apps or wireless emergency alert systems that are, that are feeding that out, now you're increasing that boundary again. And a lot of those systems are out of our control, but it's a need that we're aware of, and it's a need that the National Weather Service as a whole is working with the FCC and FEMA to better describe and point that technology towards so we can improve that system. And, and so will there at some point be uh, different maps that are specific to tsunami hazard zones that will tie those alerts? I can envision that, yeah. I, I think that's exactly what we're describing the need as. And yeah, if you think that generally we're telling people in a tsunami event, you need to go 100 feet up in elevation or one mile in, we don't need a boundary that's five miles in, right? You're safe. That's not where the tsunami is going to go. We need to describe that alert that's maybe one to two miles in to get people away from the coast, out of the way so emergency responders can come in and help people if needed. But we don't need something that's 10 miles in or one or two miles up in elevation because there's not going to be a risk there. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and we are talking today about how tsunami warnings work, what you should know when an earthquake strikes, and if you are in a tsunami uh, potential hazard area, what steps you should take. You can join our conversation statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422. 5508422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. We have in the studio today Dr. James Gridley, who is the director of the Tsunami Warning Center in Palmer, Dave Snyder, who is the Tsunami Warning Coordinator for the National Tsunami Warning Center, and Dr. Dmitry Nikolsky, who is with the Alaska Earthquake Center at the Geophysical Institute at UAF. So, Dmitry, thank you for your patience. I want to turn to you now. Anchorage residents might get irked by alerts, but a recent hazard mapping report of tsunami risk for Upper Cook Inlet was developed by the Earthquake Center. What should Alaskans know about this study and how much tsunami risk there could be for Anchorage? Um, So it was a long process to get uh, the maps out. So for Anchorage and the Upper Cook Inlet. So we started working on a project uh, a few years ago. When, when it was a confusion about uh, which areas was warned, which areas were not warned. And, and back then, uh, uh, new elevation models became available for the Anchorage area. So, and uh, we decided to help the residents to have a better understanding of the hazards in the, in the upper Cook Inlet. So we looked at um, different earthquake scenarios, uh, which are pretty large earthquakes. Uh, happening in the Gulf of Alaska and um, between Kodiak and the Kenai Peninsula. And we also in our study, we uh, found out that the tide makes a big impact mm-hmm. on the tsunami. And depending on a uh, tidal stage and the, when tsunami happens, uh, impact can be drastically different. Especially mm-hmm. here where we have some of the largest tide exchanges in the world. Yes, exactly. So that's a very big uh, tidal range in uh, close to Anchorage. That's about 30 feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it would be a, a very particular set of circumstances, as you said, would have to come at a high tide. What else should people know about the potential for risk in what areas of the, of, uh, the coast around the Anchorage community 
uh, should be of most concern? I think uh, any low-lying areas, uh, any low-lying low areas around the coastline needs to be very concerned as an Anchorage and any other community in Alaska. So if uh, people can feel shaking or it's uh, uh, some movement of the earth, then they should uh, thinking of going up to the uh, safe, safe zone. And uh, we mapped those areas and uh, for the Anchorage. And the next step would be to defining evacuation routes and evacuation zones for the community. So we're going to work with the emergency managers in the community to define those areas the next year. Okay, so there'll there'll be some follow-up reporting coming out. Yes, exactly. So what we do in the, at the University of Alaska, so we, we are trying to understand the hazard. Uh, that's how far a tsunami can go and inland. And then we work with the emergency managers, which are not uh, here, but I'm trying to represent them. And uh, that's to see how far people should, should go inland. And that's really important because when the, uh, a warning happens and when Dave and uh, is telling that people should go, should be prepared, then they should know where to, where to go. And that's what emergency managers are, are helping with. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you for that. Um, James, you talked about that there's more than a thousand monitors around the world. When an earthquake hits, how how do you go about determining whether there will or could potentially be a tsunami risk? What what are what are the different factors that tell you something like that? Okay, so think about a tsunami. It's a wave, but it's not like a surface wave in the ocean you're used to seeing. It's a full gravity wave, so you have to imagine you have to pick the whole column of water up and drop it. From the seafloor. From the seafloor. Okay, so that's a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for big magnitude events in very specific parts of the world, so along subduction zones, uh, and then map that with some historical information, and then maybe look at the depths and a few other the physics, uh, physical principles involved in this. But it's generally based on history initially, and the basic physics. Size of ma- the size of the event is usually the, the, the number one thing that gets us into a warning. So sea floor mapping sounds critical. Yes. And how much is there done and needing to be done just along the Alaska coast? So we have some. There's some pretty good stuff. Uh, good enough that we can forecast because that's what determines the propagation of the wave velocity and the wave uh, propagation, the way it moves. It's uh, it's fairly simple equation, but it involves knowing the depth. So having that having that C4 mapped is really critical, especially when you get near the coast. And then interior waterways, it's absolutely critical. Without that, it's, it's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. So you have, to have, you have to have that part down before you can actually do the forecasting. And it, it, are the interior waterways sort of emerging as, or maybe not emerging, but are bigger concerns because of that lack of mapping and what could potentially happen? Yeah, you have to think about that. A lot of the interior waterways have the fisheries, have a... A lot of boats and ships and activity. You know, our mission is life and property, protecting life and property. So, as soon as you start talking about infrastructure in Alaska, it's a little different than the rest of the West Coast. Uh, you know, San Francisco Bay has a billion dollars worth of container ships at any given day, at least, right? In Alaska, it's a little different, but uh, 
it's essentially the same problem, and we have to come at it the same way. And and just like the report, uh, Dimitri, that was released recently for Anchorage, is it uh, safe to say that the same set of circumstances could also affect areas in Southeast, like Sitka? Um, I have family that live in Sitka, and I often hear, oh, a tsunami could never get us here. We're in these inside waters. And I, I feel like that's a, a big risk. Yeah, so the, the tsunami can go and travel around the islands. That's a well-known fact. And, for example, in uh, Skagway, which is far, far away from a, a coastal area, so inside of the, this uh, maze of different inlets and channels in the southeast, and the tsunami came from 1964. Mm. It came uh, about four hours later after the main shock, but it traveled. And the tsunami can travel in, from a Pacific Ocean through the chain of islands and can get inside of a Bering Strait uh, to the western coast of Alaska. So tsunamis can travel and uh, they can flow around the islands. They can go wherever yeah. they want, just as I suspected. I hope my family is listening today mm-hmm. right now. Because right. <laughs> whenever those those uh, tsunami sirens go off, I am on the phone telling them, get going. We're going to go to the phones for a moment. Ron is in Fairbanks. Hi, Ron. Good morning. Thanks, Lori, for this uh, wonderful program on preparedness as well as the phenomenon. In the interior, we're going through a lot of things with water right now, flooding. Last winter, we had problems with power outages for our electrical distribution system. And when Murbach came through the Bering Strait, you know, there was no place to find news. And it really, uh, as we learn more about these particular phenomenon, I wish that we had a better way for the public to access that information so that we know, number one, that it's true. And secondarily, there's a robust system to deliver that to all of us the best it can be. It's really opportune, I think, that we're having all of this federal infrastructure money coming into every place. And I would hope that we have a long-term plan to try to integrate all of these safety and warning systems to a place where people can go to one spot without having to futz around and figure out who's got authority in what jurisdiction, because it's very confusing. And it could be tied to the way we think about broadband and getting information that's accurate and hopefully redundant so that it can be found by people who really want to to know. But we've got to find a portal of some sort to make sure the information is accurate. And it's just very complex for the average person to understand all of this stuff because we have no clue who we should turn to or what we should be listening to. So I think this is an opportunity for maybe to get a five to ten year plan among the emergency folks so that we can provide better access and redundant access for those of us who are sort of bewildered by things that are totally different in the interior than they are on the coast, obviously. But it's nonetheless an important opportunity, I think, we have to talk about public safety and about good information. Thanks. Well, Ron, thank you so much for your thoughtful question. I'm going to turn it over, I guess, to Dave here in a second. But I would tell you that the next time there's a big event like Murbach or something, I would hope we wouldn't have another one, but we know there probably will be, come to our website, alaskapublic.org. We had uh, intense reporting going on all through the weekend of 
Merbach uh, and coordinating with our partner stations along the coast. And so you can always come to us for updates and reports. But Dave, uh, help Ron understand what, what the plan is going forward. Yeah, thanks, Lori. And Ron, thank you for sharing your concern there. Um, I you, you said a lot of words that are really important to me, and I know a lot of people in the National Weather Service and in generally in government as a whole, we're here to serve. And you're, you're talking about service equity, I think, at, at its core. And that is something the National Weather Service and uh, certainly our emergency management partners and the whole team across the federal system, and I know the state of Alaska agrees here, um, we know that we're works here in Anchorage and on the road system is not the same thing that works for Elam and Shaktulik and every coastal community. We saw that during Murbach. We see that anytime there's a significant event. Sharing information that's quality, that's timely and accurate and helpful for you in the way that you need to receive it is hard to do for Alaska. Uh, We're at the end of the line. We're at the end of the information chain. And it's hard to support that in the ways that work for you where you are when you are. Um, that that is something that we're well aware of and I would love to say that in five to ten years we'll have that figured out broadband is going to change the way that works for sh- for sure many of those outlying communities in Alaska I'm not sure if it'll solve all of the problems but it's going to move us in that direction and I'm really excited to see where that takes us but it still needs to serve your community the way you need it and the way it serves my community today is much different than what I know that a lot of our coastal communities require. And so we're trying to understand that. And also, as you pointed out, James, people should know the risk of where they are, correct? Yep, absolutely. Uh, What Dave's saying here isn't just true for Alaska. We have to reach that equity level across our entire area of responsibility. So California has its own needs. Washington State has a massive interior waterway that we have to worry about, including an outer coast, and so on. And then there's some of the other areas that we have to deal with uh, with our sister facility, the, some of the international agreements and such. So it is a big challenge for us to meet the needs of everybody at that level. So we, we hear the public, we, and it's a very common thing that we hear no matter where we go. It's a little trickier for us to implement without doing just one massive uh, philosophy, if you will. And the statement um, about know your risk sounds very simple, but it isn't. I mean, people might live in an area that's never seen any kind of inundation, but that doesn't mean they're still not at risk, correct? Correct. And it's funny, we see um, we see this across Alaska. So for example, some of the folks that we deal with in the Aleutian Islands, they very much know their risk. When they come talk to us, they're big fans. Hello to everybody out there. They, they, they'll swing by the facility or they'll hit us on Facebook. They know exactly what they're up against. They know, they know how to weigh it out. And then there's other areas where it's just not so true. And you wonder if, they're, if they actually pay attention to the sirens or any of the uh, preparedness information we send out. So we do this every year. We go through a process where we, um, uh, we, we have a preparedness uh, month. Uh, we don't have a season like weather, or like um, hurricane or uh, winter weather. It's At least al- not yet. <laughs> it's always tsunami season. Yeah, absolutely. That's an important point. Dimitri. Yeah, so at the Alaska Earthquake Center, we have a, a library of uh, tsunami hazard zones and uh, a lot of communities where we mapped uh, how far tsunami can go inland. And so... We have other products, uh, which is tsunami evacuation times, or for example, how quickly people can get from a hazard zone away to a safe zone, so for a few communities. So we have a library, 
And uh, the website, I believe, is tsunami.alaska.edu. I wondered about that. Yeah. So a lot of that mapping is available to people online. They can look at their area and exactly. so, kind of assess uh, the risk. I think there are more than 60 communities right now where we mapped tsunamis mm-hmm. across the state. So, And we are constantly adding new communities and we're adding new products. So the next uh, step, which we are working right now, is that, and we hope to finish in a few years, is adding uh, uh, evacuation zones for communities where we mapped hazards. Oh, and so yeah. people can look at if they're in the evacuation zone and they can see where the assembly areas are, where the routes will be. And so they can have developed plans how to respond to tsunami warning and in organized matter. So we are working on that right now. In an organized manner and quickly because seconds and minutes count. Dr. Gridley. We rely heavily on the uh, Earthquake Center folks providing that information for us, and then we integrate that into our procedures and process. So we're grateful that they're there doing the work. All right, and we are going to take a quick break. When we uh, come back, we'll continue our discussion about tsunami risk in Alaska and what you should know about keeping yourself safe as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. Quality child care creates futures for families, children, and the state's economy. When children are safe, engaged, and learning, parents can work and everyone has a better outcome. Thread has resources to support your family in their child care search. Knowing what to look for in a licensed facility is important for the safety of your children. Thread also offers parenting resources and support. To learn more about quality child care in Alaska, visit threadalaska.org. This message sponsored by Thread. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We are talking about tsunami risk in Alaska and what you need to know after an earthquake and if you are in an area that could be at risk of tsunami inundation. In the studio with me today are Dr. James Gridley, the director of the tsunami National Tsunami Warning Center in Palmer, Dave Snyder, the Tsunami Warning Coordinator for the National Warning Center, and Dr. Dmitry Nikolsky, who is with the Alaska Earthquake Center at the Alaska Geophysical Institute at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. You can join our conversation statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422, or you can email us, talk at alaskapublic.org, as Lawrence did. Lawrence writes, where can someone from Juneau, for example, go to find risk of tsunami in their neighborhoods which are protected by islands. There's that thinking that you're protected by islands again. My family in Sitka says the same thing. Uh, Dimitri, you have mapping of Juno, I understand. Yeah. Are they safe when they have islands in front of them? Yeah, so there are some areas which I would not go. <laughs> some areas which I would try to get away from in Juno. What is happening in Juno is there are lots of rivers and bringing sediments to the waterfront and uh, 
the sediments, it's uh, stability of those sediments uh, and their creeks, uh, which are bringing um, glacial tilt and uh, silt, it's questionable. So, and uh, if there is an earthquake, a significant earthquake, then there could be some submarine uh, landslides which can trigger waves in Juno uh, and around Juno. So, and that is a, a big concern uh, about the local landslides in Juno. Uh, what is the probability for those uh, landslides? We, we don't know. Mm-hmm. But the potential for them is there. So looking at the Mendenhall River and how much it's bringing silt yeah. and looking at the other rivers and the nearby. It's, uh, and the people who live in June, if they feel a strong earthquake, they shouldn't uh, wait for a siren. So they should go immediately to the higher ground uh, because the siren might be, might be delayed. Mm. So because, yeah. uh, the the idea of you know not waiting for sirens, the tsunami warning center doesn't do any of that. You communicate. Um, talk about that process. Of how how those sirens actually are triggered? Uh, sure. So uh, most communities in Alaska are uh, using sirens that are locally controlled. Uh, I don't think there's very many communities that actually have those tied directly to receiving an alert message from the National uh, Weather Service or the National Tsunami Warning Center. Um, that that has some implications on time. So community, we, we let communities make that choice. And with the support of the state of Alaska, they can work through the process and figure out what works best for them. A lot of these communities are, are small communities. They don't have a large staff, and that's hard to do when, you know, there's very few people that have a key, have quick access to the button, and actually turn the siren on and let that run. Um, so the other side of that is, you know, there there is the official message that the warning system sends out, that we send out from our center. But we've also worked with local communities, the state of Alaska and the Alaska Earthquake Center, to help communities understand their risk, to know their risk, and know what to do when they feel long and strong shaking. So we teach people, if you feel shaking that lasts for about 20 seconds or more, that's good enough signal. You need to move away from the coast, move 100 feet up, one mile in, get away from the water, and wait for further instructions from your local emergency management. And then we provide that in our event cycle there as we're giving information to the state of Alaska and those local communities and the local weather forecast office so they know, yes, we've confirmed a wave, now you need to keep waiting in that safe spot. But some of these communities have such limited time that waiting for that process to reach the person with the key to turn on the siren might be too long. Mm. And, and we know that. We know that Alaska's had significant impacts from landslide or undersea uh, landslides that have moved water that might not have been tied to a local earthquake event. Um, but we know some of those historical ones that Ned Rizal's written about there. Latuya uh, Bay is a good... Uh, Latuya Bay is the big very one. amazing um, example. Unimac Pass and the Scotch Cap Lighthouse, that was 1946. That was the event that actually started the Pacific Tsunami Warning Center's mission. But it was a landslide impact here at Unimac Pass that got Scotch Cap. Latuya Bay is the one you mentioned in 1958, a 1,720-foot-tall tsunami wave. And then Tan Fjord, more recently, uh, 2015, that was uh, presumed to be about 630 feet. And we're watching for uh, an uh, above-water landslide right now out in 
Berry Arm, uh, about 20, 22 minutes north of Whittier. So landslide problems in Alaska are a huge problem for tsunami and one that we are not well designed to serve at this point. And, and Dimitri, maybe you could pick it up there uh, talking about looking at those landslides hazards. And I know that the center has been working on the Berry Arm, as Dave mentioned. What can you tell us about what you're gaining understanding of in that area? So we are looking at the different communities where rivers are coming from glaciers and that if a river is coming from a glacier, it's a big indication that uh, a potential landslide can happen in this, uh, in this area. So people should be aware of hazards. So if they're close to the low-lying area where the river is coming and it's bringing all these muddy waters with them, so they should be aware of getting away from this place as soon as there is strong ground shaking. Because uh, during 1964, uh, waves from a local landslides were happening uh, during when the ground was shaking and uh, in a minute or two minutes after the first main shock. But the shaking continued for five minutes. Mm. So it is really hard to get. People should get clues from a natural signs of earthquakes and that's uh and that's important for safe evacuation and the the work that's being done to figure out what's what the potential risk is at berry arm what what have you learned about um, what could happen there what can happen there so we are uh starting to evaluate risk for whittier this year so we have a uh sponsored by NOAA to look at uh, and to conciliate different science and different points of view of scientists for the very arm. So, and we will, gonna, we will work with different groups. And uh, some groups are telling one height, another group is telling another height. So we would like to bring all of them to the, to the same table and, so, and to find what's uh, an opinion and what's a range of a possible different scenarios would be. So that's a work in progress, and uh, hopefully in a, in a year, on a year and a half, we would have more better results about uh, unified voice. I would say what might be happening in the bare arm, but the bare arm is a very massive landslide, mm. so it can displace a lot of water. Am I right in? I think I remember seeing a documentary about Latuya Bay, and that there had actually been an event that had happened long before the 1950s event that was puzzling to scientists because there was no record of a earthquake, but there was all this uh, historical signs of an enormous inundation. <clears throat> and they didn't figure it out until the event in the 1950s. Is that pretty much correct? Yeah, so Lituya had a history of uh, uh, different gigantic uh, tsunamis and uh, and it was coming back from, uh, I think, a history uh, of Alaska from uh, um, looking at the records from uh, people who lived in the area. So, and it was just in 1980, 1800s, was uh, probably two events. Mm. And so, these uh, landslides uh, occur at the same spot uh, from year to year. So, in, the, in Valdez, for example, after the 1964, it was a study which was looking at uh, cost stability at the at the previous landslide, and engineers determined that it not much was in not much improvement happened 1964, 
And then recently, probably like 20 years ago, USGS looked at the sediments in the in the, in the, in the Bay of Valdez, in the Port mm. Valdez. And they found the previous landslides, five previous landslides before, which was happening before 1964. So it was a, a lot. So, and um, those landslides happen at, uh, periodically when a strong ground shaking happens. But it can happen without a, a ground shaking. And of course, with climate change, as things are warming, as there's more moisture, the risk of landslides is growing. Is there any uh, information that you've all been able to determine about the percentage of risk and, and how that may be increasing? That would be to, a, a good question to the Alaska Division of Geological and Geophysical Survey. From my conversation with them, they think that the soil conditions are changing and that the previous support that these glaciers were bringing to some slopes was, is changing. So, and um, they, things are moving, things are changing in Alaska. So we are trying to figure out where it's, where it's going to be in the future. Dimitri, the Alaska Earthquake Center website noted this morning that there have been more than 300 earthquakes in just the last seven days. How does Alaska compare to other seismically active states when it comes to activity here? So we have the longest trench in Alaska <laughs> comparing to other states. Yeah. So and, and the coastline is definitely very, very long. So And uh, the state is big. So that's why we have a very big number of tsunamis mm-hmm. and uh, also earthquakes comparing to other places. Very seismically active, the Ring of Fire. James, uh, you talked a bit about this, but I just wanted to get a better understanding of the actual wave that forms. It was so fascinating to, to better understand that, that it's coming all the way from the seafloor. How does that affect the energy of that, that wall of water as compared to a tide, the waves that are created by a tide, or as we see in, in the inlet, the bore tides that come in? How, are they, how do they compare and contrast? Uh, orders of magnitude greater. Yeah, it's, it's. I'm not sure there's an easy way to describe that. Is is there more power because it's coming from the seafloor that it creates more of like an actual wall where it's just a lot denser? So you have to, think of it, have, you have to flex the earth a bit. So that takes a lot of energy, and you see that in the earthquake. You transfer that energy to the water. So as, the, as it's propagating and the wave reaches the coast, even though the, the uh, height of the tsunami in the open ocean might be a centimeter or a few inches, it has this incredibly long period, like 100 kilometers. And as you get closer to the, to, the, to the shore, that water has to go somewhere. And so it piles up, piles up, and piles up, and eventually has to get pushed inland, right, as the wave continues to push it forward. Dave, thank you. Dave, tell us about what you called in an earlier interview the pre-gamed information that mm-hmm. you have to use to start gauging how fast and large a wave may be. I'm sure that you know, you've know you got a seconds count, of course. I can't imagine how tense it is at the center when these things are happening in real time. So. Talk exactly. about that process. Right. I'd love for you to come and sit in the center someday and just listen to all the bells and whistles and alarms that, that move us or inform us that something is starting. So every time one of those alarms goes off, we have to operate from a moment of 
we don't know if this is going to be the big one. We are just getting that preliminary information. And in five minutes or less, we need to get our first message out that helps people understand, is this something they need to respond to or pay more attention to? So the clock starts at that first alarm. But we have, we have kind of what I said, the pregame uh, situation was we have pre-designed scenarios set up for just about every section of our coastline that says, if something big happens here in this range for this part of coastline or near this part of the coastline, then we're going to send this level of an alert. And that's just our first alert. After that, we go into a period where we have very limited information, and that makes emergency managers and local community members and the public just go nuts. They and want the to press. Know. Yes, yeah. You want to know, yes or no, am I in danger or can I go back to sleep because it's 2 o'clock in the morning, right? And we don't know. There is a period of time where we have detected a significant event, a large earthquake, and we don't know if it has moved water or not. And we're waiting just like you are. That period can go from 30, 60, 90 minutes before we have a reasonable expectation and actually detected something that tells us water is moving or it's not. And during that period, we're refining our forecast and ability to then message your local and state emergency management officials and all the people in your community that there is danger or there's not. But it's it's a science problem because we don't have things that can tell us at that moment has water moved away from that earthquake source or not between you and the coastline and that earthquake. And it's, it's a really difficult problem to solve. And when you say it's a science problem, is it because there aren't enough buoy monitors and, and other gauges out there that can give you that information? Sure, but even with a even with a very dense net of buoys and underwater sensors, uh, or even coastal water sensors, uh, we still don't have a fully described uh, understanding of the wave. We would need something that covers the total picture of the total ocean to know is water moving away from that source. And there are other ways to kind of bridge that gap and patch it up, but we need a whole system of things like that that, that build that complete picture. So the center must be staffed 24-7, or are people working remotely? Yes, we're 24-7, 365. There's always people there. That's right. Okay. Always two people? Always two people. And during an event, you'd be surprised, even though it's, it can be loud and a lot of alarms going off, our, our folks are really cool and calm. They're doing their job. Uh, they know what they know the wait periods they know what has to happen next we try to do this as a production be as predictable in the process as we can even though the earth can be kind of unpredictable and i think that sits better with the uh with the media with the public with the state operations center folks emergency managers all right we are going to take another quick break and when we come back we will continue our discussion about how to keep yourself safe during earthquake and tsunami risk as talk of alaska continues statewide Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. What gives you strength? Strength comes from teaching the Alaskan way of life, getting wood, fishing, hunting, helping people in the community, and being an example for the next generation. If you have forgotten your strength, remember, there's hope, there's joy, there's love, there's peace everywhere. Share what gives you strength at recoveralaska.org slash share your strength. This message sponsored by Recover Alaska. The seafood industry puts thousands of Alaskans to work across the state. From fishermen and scientists to mechanics and shipping agents, the seafood industry sustains Alaska's economy all year long. 
Alaskans take pride in the work ethic that drives the state in ways big and small. Seafood sustains Alaska. This message sponsored by Alaska Seafood Marketing Institute. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. We're talking about the risk for your community of earthquake and tsunami damage and what you should know in those scary seconds after the shaking stops and what you should do in in those uh, crucial minutes to keep yourself safe. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 907-550-8422, 907-550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Let's go to James in Anchorage. Hi, James. I think it's Jamie. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, I should have put my glasses back on. It is Jamie. Sorry, Jamie. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. You know, I'm not one to call in radio stations and stuff like that, but I heard this and I thought I need to know for myself. You know, I've been really afraid, tell you the truth, reading about the the potential earthquake that could come next and how big the potential is for it, you know. And, uh, And I've been wondering about tsunamis. Now, I lived in Juneau during the last, the 64 one, but I was a little girl, but there wasn't, you know, it was the same magnitude hit here in Anchorage. And I've heard stories from people that also were here during the the earthquake and how the street was like, the streets were like rolling like, uh, well, you know, and they broke up. It was, it was very bad here. And I just wonder, I live on the flat area right in town. How, how in the world do you get in your car and try to drive during an earthquake to get to a high place? And even if the roads are busted up, then how do you get there? I mean, I, I do want to know this. Or should I move to somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> no, don't move, Jamie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, we've got the best folks here to answer that question for you. So I know what I would say. Uh, wait until the ground stops shaking. And then if you can't drive on the road, just get out and run up somewhere. Yeah, so it depends on where you are. So where exactly are you in Anchorage? I live uh, in Midtown. Midtown. So on Arctic, by Spinard, kind of. She was in Juneau for the 64 earthquake. Okay, okay. Yeah, Yeah. Midtown's okay. Midtown, you should be fine there. Yeah. Yeah. Have some concerns about earthquake damage, of course. This is a good example of know your risk. Right. right. Yeah. The risk is the earthquake. If you're in Midtown, it's not likely to be a tsunami. Exactly. I'm in Airport Heights, not worried. Worry about earthquake damage. Don't worry about a tsunami getting my neighborhood. Dimitri. Yeah, so that the road damage is a big concern mm-hmm. when, during an earthquake. For example, in, in the Cordova during 1964, all bridges between the airport and the, and the city were damaged and were uh, removed because of the liquefaction effect. Mm. So and when I'm going to some small communities and... A community is divided by a bridge or by a creek. It's a big concern that uh, only maybe one uh, side of a community can go to the high ground, but another community has to cross the creek. And if it's a uh, winter conditions, that's so. Understanding the evacuation routes and and trying to avoiding bridges, it's a it's a big plus. And then people should be prepared walking, walking instead of driving, because if two if it's it's really a scary time during an earthquake and after the earthquake about what may be happening and if there is a collision then 
it, no one is going to be moving. So people should be prepared to walking to the safe zone. You know, that's such an important point, too, to be thinking about those evacuation routes in summer and winter, because that might present different challenges for people getting to safety as quickly as they need to. So it's really important to think about the seasonality of how you're evacuating, too. Exactly. So when we're de- developing maps, how quickly people can get away from a hazard zone, we're using a walking speed of two miles an hour. So we're trying to account for all people so and to estimate how, how quickly elderly people and kids can go safely. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some parts of Alaska, we can think of it as a perfect sunny day, but it can be um, rain in the winter and roads can be icy and it can be night. Yes, yeah, dark and yeah, add to the anxiety that people have. Let's go back to the phones for a moment. In our final minutes here, Bruce is in Palmer. Hello. Hi. Did you have a question? Yes, my question is um, the Tsunami Warning Center, in in concert with uh, emergency services, uh, would oftentimes go do outreach programs in the islands and the Aleutians and all the way down along the coast, uh, Juneau and southeast Alaska as well and give talks at schools and uh, public venues uh, about the danger. And it was a nice personal contact with, uh, with folks that are in danger. And I'm wondering if they still, and they also would give talks uh, at least once a week at the center itself where they would have a little uh, lecture type of, they have a place where they can talk to folks. And I was just wondering, they still do that. All right. Thanks, Bruce. Yeah. Thanks. So COVID obviously forced us to not, do these things. We're starting to do that again. Uh, we've been talking about opening back up and having our regular tours, as we call them. We're trying to re-envision what that looks like. Uh, our staff misses that. They, they like going out and talking to folks. Um, and it's, it's nice being in Alaska where there is the risk. If we were in some, like, Boulder, Colorado, that would be really difficult for us to do. But here, it's, it's, our, it's our friends, our neighbors, and we want them to be prepared because uh, we, we, we care about them. We care about the place we live. Uh, and I think that probably in the next month or two, you'll start seeing some information come out that shows uh, uh, when we're going to be open and how we're going to do all that. All right. Thank you for that. Thanks for the question, Bruce. If an earthquake is under a certain level, a five instead of a seven, say, does this usually mean that it's sort of ho-hum for all of your concerns? Or is it all about the length of the quake, the depth? of where it is and other factors that can make a smaller quake more dangerous. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so the level that you're describing right now, typically, if, if all things are equal, it would not be a significant concern to us. But we're going to analyze it and treat it like it is until we know better. That's the important part. Uh, but a local and small quake could still cause a tsunami uh, from a landslide. And and so we don't know. I mean, the, the Barry Arm landslide, for example, has survived a lot of really big earthquakes, including the Anchorage earthquake. What What is it going to take to drop that? We, we don't know, right? It could just be rainfall and go someday on its own. So we're, we're acting like it's a big deal until we know better and until we haven't measured water, until we have seen that it's not moving any water toward a coastline. But the most likely thing that you're going to see from us because of that is something called a tsunami information statement. And basically, that's a no-threat bulletin from us saying, We've talked to you as a local community to respond to long and strong shaking, to move away from the coast if you feel that. And you don't know if that's a faraway quake or if it's something right under your feet when you feel it at that moment, right? So we send that message out saying, 
hey, we, we know you probably felt something. You're okay. Stand down. You don't need to react and respond or move away from the coast. This is not a big enough earthquake, and we detect no danger. And uh, all right, so we know that it's a lot more about location and other factors uh, beyond the magnitude of the quake. What is the latest in our final minute here? What is the latest science on actual uh, alerts before an earthquake? I know that there's been efforts made at being able to predict an earthquake before it strikes so that things can happen like emergency doors could close or, or things that could potentially keep people safe. What, what, what's the understanding of where that's at currently? <laughs> Interesting question. Are you asking, can we predict earthquakes before they occur? I am asking that. No. Can we, can we describe reoccurrence rates and things like that? Yes. Right. Can we describe risk? Yes. But I can't tell you that tomorrow there's going to be a 7.5. Well, right. Of course not tomorrow. But, are, but isn't there some science that's aimed at just a few seconds before an earthquake? Yeah. There is an there is a early earthquake warning. So when uh, an earthquake happening in one part of a state or territory or some other state, and then uh, some sensors can detect it, and then electricity is much quicker, can, can flow through the wires, then actually the seismic wave can, can travel through the earth. The seismic wave travels about three, three miles per hour, but electricity is speed of light. And people can try to guesstimate where this earthquake is and so how, how it propagates, so it can see what the impacts would be. The, the technology is there, but the social science, which is really important for understanding all the different risks and understanding how people should behave, I think, in my opinion, it's not funded very well. Because people in this this information becomes available in a in a school about what the science teacher should do about that information. Yeah, but right now that's not going to help the tsunami problem. It doesn't tell us that water is moving toward your coastline. Ah, good, excellent point. Thank you for ending on that important note. Thanks to my guests, Dave Snyder, tsunami warning coordinator for the National Tsunami Warning Center located in Palmer. Dr. James Gridley, who is the director of the Tsunami Warning Center, and Dr. Dmitry Nikolsky, who is with the Alaska Earthquake Center and is an associate research professor at the Geophysical Institute. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. I'm Lori Townsend. Have a good week. Okay, here. Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.